All right. For me, I have to confess, it is a scary class to try to teach one hour when each lesson is about 12 or 13 or 14 pages. So, uh, just kind of giving you an overview of what we're going to do with our book. This book that you have, Discovering Your Role in God's Family, um, everybody has that book, is that right? All right, good. Just to kind of introduce you to the class, uh, give you an idea of where they're going with this book. I'll give you a slice of life in China. Life in China, if you are a teacher, the assumption is teachers teach, students listen, students never ask questions. So one of the hard things for me when I first got there teaching at the university, I asked them questions and our heads all go, and I'd ask another question, our heads go like this. So I'm like, okay, this is going really well, all right? So one of the challenges in China when I was teaching in ministry there was the fact that They don't do what we call critical thinking, but that's even happened with our educational system in America, and that is we memorize, we listen, we memorize, we spit it back out, and we say we've learned something, but the reality is we really haven't thought through it. We've memorized, we've done the old cram thing, and then we spit it out, and maybe an hour or a day or a week later, we don't remember half that stuff. If that's the case, then quite frankly, we haven't learned. This book, these discovery books with the word discovery series, is intended to help take us through a cycle. So let me just show you that cycle very quickly, introduce it to you. If you take your book and look down at the bottom of the page, it says there's three eyes. It's like I, 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 and it has a picture that looks like this. You're going to turn to the page, and it's down at the bottom. These are like small numbers. They're not like 1.1. you got a picture like this. So if you look down at the very bottom of the page, it looks like I, 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 all right? What this is doing, uh, what this intends for us to do is not just for me to stand and lecture, you listen, and then we walk away going, hopefully we've learned something. Here's the honest truth, and this is where people may head for the door when they hear this. Intentionally, uh, this class is intended to have homework with it. And if you mention the word homework with the class on Wednesday night, suddenly people be like, dude, I am so out of this class. Let me go watch the video class so that I can still text and do whatever else, all right? So in a perfect world, that's where we would like to go, all right? But that being said, the reality is um, I realize you're busy people, we are busy people, and Life is such that it's hard to keep up with doing a bunch of homework. But the intent is this. It's not intended. If you see the learning process is we start with introducing an issue, then we study the scriptures to start pulling out what it says rather than a teacher telling you what it says. Then we read something that helps us get more insight to what it says. Then we draw conclusions, which is a great learning process. Rather than teacher teaches, students listen, they spit it out, and then a week later they forgot it. The whole point is to make us work through it in advance so that then together we are discovering. It's what you might call inductive study. That is, you are Sherlock Holmes. You are looking at the clues. You're looking at the things that you will see there, trying to pull out what it says in Scripture. And quite honestly, if we were to do this on a regular basis, this would help us with our own personal study of God's Word. Because the best way for us to grab what the Spirit is giving us through the Word of God is to be good detectives. If we could be Sherlock Holmes looking at the details, looking at the big picture details, the small picture details, that would make a significant difference in our understanding, our grasp of God's Word, 
and hopefully not just knowledge, but our relationship with God as well. So that being said, we're on a journey together with this, and I will, uh, I, I left, I realize we've moved twice tonight, so I don't have these papers, I'll get them at the end. I will give you something that will encourage you that if you have time between now and next week, when we go to issue number two, you read through some of this, you try to do some of it, not all of it, so that when we come back together, we're at least somewhat prepared. If you don't have time, there's no guilt. This is a no guilt class. This is like, you know, you want to be in the biggest loser class and you're still eating bonbons. It doesn't really matter, all right? It doesn't matter. It's all good. All right, so let's start with a word of prayer tonight, and we're going to start looking at discovering our role in God's family. Father, we do thank you tonight that we are in your family, not because we chose to be in your family, but because of your grace. Uh, We would never have made that choice. We would have rejected you. We would have continued in rebellion. We would have continued our own way only to find that our own way was empty and worthless. And yet we thank you now that not only are we saved, pardoned, forgiven, but adopted into a new family. And not just a new family, but a new community, a community representing Christ here on the earth. And Father, our desire is to not only see the importance of this new family and this new community, but our place in it. So as we look at your word tonight, as we look at these matters before us, give us wisdom, uh, give us understanding, and most importantly, give us hearts yielded to pursue the path you have for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, we're going to try something because this, hopefully this is going to work. Maybe. There we go. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure this works. This is a PowerPoint converted to a JPEG converted to Proclaim. So it's a nifty what these guys can do, all right? This is what, where we're going on this journey is, and you may be afraid thinking, all right, I'm walking into a class about the church, and we're like, I already know about the church. And that's really not the intent of this. It's to understand the priority and the role of the church and what role, what part we have in that. So this discovery series does include homework. And we're not going to be able to cover everything in a one-hour slot. Um, as a teacher, I wish this was two hours. You're going, thank God, it's only one hour. Because some of you are like really tired right now, and you could use another cup of the Davis's coffee out there. But the goal is to get through as many of the main ideas and personal connections we can in each of these issues. But I will say that if we could learn a response like this, because if you notice, it starts with step one, grasp the issue, and it works down to what step six is. And this is really what should be true of us in all of our interaction with God's Word, whether it's a Sunday morning, a a Wednesday night, our own personal study, is seeking to pull out what does God say and then what do we do with it. If we only come away with what did God say, and we've learned a lot of knowledge, we're going to do very well in Bible trivial pursuit. But that's not what we're all about. Um, We are all about knowing God, and that knowledge moves us to action. And that's really the intent of this. So, all that being said, that's the introduction. Let's jump into it. Go to issue number one, which is, if you look at the bottom of your page, it's 1.1. 1.1, and it says, God's New Community. One of the wonders of this class that didn't happen very often in China that drove me crazy because I love interaction, that if any time you have a question, you're like, hey, I don't get that, or what's, what, what's up with what you just said, feel free, raise your hand. If I talk too fast or something, slow me down. I mean, this means slow down, all right? So any questions, because I want this to be interactive, 
Now, that being said, you may not want to interact because you're like, dog, I am tired. All right, do whatever you can. All right, and if you need to stand up, get a cup of, another cup of coffee, we're in a good place to get that. First thing we're looking at tonight is God's new community. Um, and I'm just going to read through a portion of this there at the top of the page. I'm normally not going to read a bunch of this stuff because you can read it, but I'm going to introduce parts of it. If you look at the top of page 1.1, it says, Each of us wants our life to count. We want to make a difference in the world. This chapter is looking at how God has intended one venue more than any other venue on planet Earth is intended for that to happen, and that is the church. In other words, you've heard said before that people want to feel wanted and people want to feel needed. If they feel wanted and needed, they keep coming back. That's why the gangs in L.A. work so well, right? Gangs in L.A. aren't necessarily just about beating the tar out of somebody else that's in a rival gang. You often hear, you often see on the news, it's about them finding community because most of those kids came from broken homes. They had no father figure. They had no connection figure. So they felt wanted and needed. Well, that's a gang. We're not trying to be gangs. But at the end of the day, that's really what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. And that is how we should fit in. That we are wanted. We are wanted, we know, not because everybody makes us feel wanted. I mean, I wish that were true. I wish it were true that when people walk through the door, that every time they walk through the door, they felt like, man, these people just loving the fact that I'm here, all right? But, you know, people can look certain ways, and, you know, it's funny. Somebody could give you a look, and you, you just automatically start thinking, what do they mean by that look? But the reason we know we are wanted is not by people's reception of us. We are wanted because of what Christ did to put us in this family. That's how we know we're wanted. All right, so we are wanted, and because we are intricately a part of God's plan, we are needed. Uh, that doesn't mean God can't do what he's doing without us, but it does mean that is his plan. So here's what we're going to explore. Down below, overview the issue. There are four bullet points. We're going to explore in very brief form some of these things. God's plan for the ages, past, present, and future. That is... From the time of Israel to this day, God's been calling out a people of his own, not because they are somebody great or they've done something great, simply because he chose to love them. That's it. Nothing inherently in us. That's going to be a part of God's plan. We're going to examine how the church fits into his overall plan, especially this third one, identify the significance of your involvement in the church and then fourth, embark on a journey to discover more specifically how God wants to use you to accomplish his work in the world. <clears throat> Do any of, you, any of you run your own business? All right, so Brian runs his own business, and Kim runs her own business, all right? You know, we, every, everybody that works for a company, like, they want to be the boss. And then they become the boss, like, wow, it's not so great being the boss. Because then at the end of the day, it falls back on you. You know, when it comes to things that we do, ventures that we are in, responsibilities that we have. At the end of the day, you have a business, you have a business, we have other people in community that have a business, but at the end of the day, we all have a higher business regardless of what we do in our calling because this that we have in this body of Christ, this is God's plan for our life. This isn't like, here's the spokes of the wheel. Too often, there is me and God and church are one of these things around here rather than God's at the center and what spindles out from that are the things that are a part of that. Central to that is the church and that's what we want to see. Now, 
Starting with grasp the issue. There's six things, as I said, we walk through when we're meeting together in this class. First one is getting a grasp of what the issue is. And if you notice, and I'm just going to throw this up there, maybe. All right. And it's jumping through all these things. Normally, I was going to click, 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 but it throws everything up there because it's been converted. So you see everything that's up there. But when we talk about grasping the issue, sound bites at the bottom of each section are statements that may or may not be true. We're not going to look at all of them. I'm going to pick just usually two or three of them to read and have you with us or with me help me understand how do we view that in relation to the church. So, for example, first three. We're not going to look at all six of them, just the first three. First statement says the church is not a building. The church is people. Agree, disagree, why? All right? The why question is always a hard question because they're like, everybody's like, yeah, I agree. Okay, why? All right, if we say the church is not a building, the church is people, how does that impact our view of the church? Why would we say something like that? And this will test who wants to talk and who really doesn't want to talk. All right, here's what's like. People are like, dog, I know next week I'm sitting on the way back. All right, yeah. Bill. Uh, it's made up of people because the, the building is just the building. This was just the school hmm. due to be torn down. And we made it into a gathering place where the congregation as a church could meet and try to do God's work. But other than that, it's just the building. I mean, we could be meeting anywhere, and, and you saw that in China. Yeah. They didn't have buildings, they had nothing So if What Bill is saying is true. If this building were to burn down this week, Lord willing, that won't happen, and we decide to meet out on the soccer field, the athletic field, does the church still exist? And we all say, absolutely, it does. All right? That's why uh, growing up, I grew up at a church uh, at Inner City where they called the room where we meet for worship. They called it the sanctuary. Then the next pastor came, he called it the auditorium. Pastor Ken calls this the auditorium. I would call it the auditorium because the word sanctuary gives the picture that when we come in this room, God is in here, but when we go out of this room, he's not here. Saying we're going to go to the church makes it sound like we're going to where God is. And here's, here's the reality. When we think that way, we're thinking Old Testament. Old Testament, they had a temple that was built that was where the presence of God dwelt. Now, that's not to say that God was only in that one spot. He was nowhere else. But in worship, it was localized there. What does the New Testament say? Who or what is the temple of the living God? We are. All right? So when that's why we can say when we gather together, that's when we're talking about the church, the beauty of the church. Unfortunately, the, the dark ages of church history, when all these incredibly beautiful church buildings were built, That was even driven by wrong theology. And that is thinking that the temple is this building. So we build these beautiful temples that are reflective of God. But that's not the picture of the New Testament. The beauty of the church is not the building. That doesn't mean we want a a bad-looking building, all right? But at the end of the day, what's really supposed to draw people in is the beauty of the church of which we are out there. And that's what hopefully draws them in. Second quote, and here's two different ways of using this quote. It's really kind of opposite perspectives. God uses many different organizations for his purposes, one of which is the local church. Third one says, God is working in the world today primarily through the local church. 
All right, now here's where I'm going to test your thinking because some of you are just hoping that I won't ask you personally. But what's the difference between what they're saying there? What is the difference? Absolutely, you nailed it. Exactly. In other words, you either are siding with, I'm saying, according to God's word, the church is God's primary means of his work today. Over here, we're saying the church is one of those things. So then you've heard of, perhaps, organizations we call a parachurch organization. There's lots of them. Those are many different church-type ministries. The word para literally means alongside the church. All right? Now, that may be camps, that may be college ministries, that may be a lot of different ministries. Now, are those ministries good or are they evil? And you're like, uh, maybe, depends, you know, that's true. It does depend. But the reality is this. I mean, here's, here's where we're starting with, and I'm starting with assumptions that we will draw out of Scripture shortly. At the end of the day, when any one ministry becomes more important than the local church, then that ministry has gone wrong, all right? Um, that means whether a church has an Awana program, a college program, whatever ministry it is that, that develops in that church, if it becomes known for this is what that church is, is that ministry, then we've missed the mark. Because what is glorious, Jesus says, that he is building is the church, the people, not necessarily a program we've created. So we're stepping into this with these thoughts. And I'm trying to just bring these thoughts into our mind because that doesn't mean we don't start ministries and we don't grow different types of ministries to different needs through this church. The danger is, let's say we start a counseling ministry and we want to start doing that. That's something I love to do. I, I love the study of that, but we don't want to say, well, Community Bible Church is a, is a counseling ministry, all right? That is part of the Great Commission because part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all things, teaching them to obey God's Word. Yeah, that's it. So we want to have that perspective in regard to the church. Now, let's jump into some scriptures here. Matter of fact, before we do that, time, I, I, I've not taught this before, and you're going to be like, well, I can tell that. Um, <laughs> I've not taught this before, but I, I love the way it's laid out, and I love the material that's in there. The problem is I'm looking at it going, man, there's so much good stuff in here, but one hour... I can remember in high school when I had to give a 7 to 10 minute speech for my speech class in high school, and that was my final exam speech. That sounded like 100 years long, 7 to 10 minutes. I mean, 1 to 3 minutes sound like a killer. Now an hour sounds like, dude, that's just putting the front porch on. i got to put the whole house together in the second hour, all right? Not enough time. So there's so much that I want to do, and there's case study. If you go to page 1.2 or 1.2, there's a couple of case studies if I had time, I would read them. Next week, I'll encourage you to read those case studies or at least one of them related to it. But each week, if you look under Tom's case study, it asks a question. What is the central question or issue before us? When we're looking at this week, uh, God's new community and our part in that, the key question is these things we've already laid out. But I want to encourage you. And this is where I'll, I'll hand you a piece of paper at the end of the hour today about our, our next week and what I'm going to ask you to look at. 
is if you take time to think through, all right, based on what they introduce, here's what the issues are, here's what the questions are, where are we trying to go? In other words, it's like this statement up here. I don't know if this thing works. You can't see it. All right, down in the bottom right corner, it says a problem properly stated is partly solved. Henry Hazlitt. I have no idea who Henry Hazlitt is, but it's a great quote, all right? Um, he is saying this, that part of us solving or coming to a right conclusion is starting with what is the problem? What are we laying out in front of us? Or where are we trying to go on our journey? So I've laid out up here, what is the question? What is the central question or issue before us? Each lesson we go through is going to ask that question. I've laid out what I thought after reading through this, thinking through, what I thought, at least from my perspective, is the answer. Now, there is no perfectly right answer. I don't have a teacher's edition. It's like, you know, you can ask them, but here's the right answer you want to get. All right, we're trying to pull it together, and we're detectives together working through the Word. The answer I've laid out is we want to see the priority of God's new community, that is the church, seeing that priority, and find real fulfillment in life by pursuing God's purpose for the church. In other words, we're not trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment in our family, our marriage, our jobs, our things, whatever. That's not to say we can't have pleasure in those things. They aren't our priority pleasure. There is, they, are, they are sub-pleasures, if you can put it that way. They are pleasures as they're related to God. So that's where I want us to try to go. Now, in a perfect world, it would be take the Scriptures, think through them, pull out what do you think, all right? Um, we're going to try to do that. I'm going to try to do that tonight with you and hopefully encourage you to do that in preparation for next week. And again, don't walk in next week going, all right, I'm going to sit in the back and do the sheepish thing because I'm not ready. I don't have my homework. It's all good, all right? Just show up every week. If you can only look at one little thing, that's fine. Our thing is to get us to look at and see things that maybe we don't catch when we read God's Word. So there's some scriptures we're going to go through here. First of all, as we've looked at grasping the issue, let's go to the scriptures. Acts chapter 2. If you look at the bottom of page 1.2, it's got a long section of scripture. It goes from 1.2 to 1.3, and I think it finishes on 1.4. Yes, it does. We're not going to read all that. All right, we just don't have time. That's Peter's incredible first sermon in the book of Acts. It's when Pentecost took place, when the Holy Spirit came down, the church began. At the end of that message, Peter had revival, quite frankly. 3,000 people put their faith in Christ, and amazing things happened. But what we want to see is when these people became believers as is going to be unveiled in the New Testament, primarily through Paul, but through the other writers, they were placed into a new community, a new family called the church, the body of Christ. They were placed into that. And the neat thing is we 2,000-plus years later can go, all right, what's church supposed to look like? And I can tell you right now what church didn't look like was a building. It didn't look like a building. Honestly, it didn't look like a building for a long, long time in the history of the early church. It looked like a people, period. But what did that people look like? Well, look, if you would, at the bottom of page 1.3, and we're going to go to the top of page 1.4. And that is, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Look down at the very bottom, starting with verse 41. 
the very, very bottom of 1.3. It says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And it goes on to describe what happened to these people that were added. Added to what? Well, there was no club. There was no nothing. They were added to, as we're going to see, as Paul unveils in the New Testament, added to the body of Christ, added to the church. And this is what they look like. Verses 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling the possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, if you notice underneath that, there's a couple of questions. I'm not using those questions. Because here's what strikes me when I read those particular verses. All right? Remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the disciples? Did he say that when you go out with this message, will they be loved or hated? They're going to be hated. He said, they're going to persecute you. Some of you, they're going to kill you. Matter of fact, Peter was told, you're going to die. And Peter's like, well, what about him? You know, what about John? Well, that's up for me to decide, but I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be good for you. And as we've assumed from history that Peter was crucified upside down, all right? So we know this, but here's, here's the first thing that just jumps off the Scripture here as we look at the church. If that's true, if what Jesus said is true, and people have been persecuted, and having spent eight years in China, where prior to our arrival there was intense persecution in the late, well, from 1949 till really the early to mid-70s, intense persecution in that country for their faith, just like there is in Arab countries and many Arab countries, Muslim countries. But look what it says. Here's the part that really catches my attention because it doesn't seem to fit. Verse 47, it says, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, if you see in the book of Acts how it progresses, persecution breaks out more and more and more. Quite frankly, the biggest persecution broke out after the death of Stephen when Saul, soon to be Paul, was there at the stoning of Stephen. You go to chapter 8. God used, in the book of Acts, he used persecution to get the gospel to go where it was supposed to have gone. He said, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the rest of the world. By Acts chapter 7, it was still in Jerusalem. But God used the death of Stephen and the persecution that came because of that to bounce it out to Samaria and eventually to the other parts where it was supposed to go. My question is this, when we look at that, and I think I've got it up there, what created the favor of all the people? In other words, what did others see that drew them in? If we look at this simple description, and and maybe as you're hearing this and you're reading this, nothing's jumping off the page. I circled a few words that get repeated in here that jump off the page. But why would people enjoy, why would people look at this group and be, I'm not just enamored by this group. It's like, I want to be a part of this group. Uh, These people were not rejected initially. Now, in time, they were. 
because they began to be seen as these are Moses' law rejectors, and so the Jews were going to go after them. But when they first were changed, there was something about them that says, as Luke writes for us, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Anything you've seen in those verses that we just read that would make you think, maybe this is why. Yeah, Brian. Absolutely. All right. So you do something good for me. It's like what happened with Jesus. Jesus, when he finally lays out the straight truth, he finds out who the people were that just followed him for the free food and for the show. All right. The people that were there just for the free food and the show, when he started giving them the truth, they scattered, they were gone. So you're right. When people see it, there's something for it. There's something in there for me. I'm all in. All right. Exactly. What else? Do you see anything else? So they, they saw something different. They may not have understood what it was, all right? Something else was different. But do you notice a dynamic that was going on? It's repeated. Matter of fact, there's one word that's repeated three times and, and, and really is drawing in. Yes? Thank you. Thank you. That was the word. If you see in those verses, and I almost read it that way, and I should have, but she caught it. Together, together, together. Why is that important? Do you remember what Jesus prayed? I mean, we say the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 7, but really, quite honestly, or Matthew 6, um, the Lord's Prayer, the longest recorded prayer is John 17. But you remember as Jesus is praying, he says, I don't just pray for these the disciples that were with him, but he said, I pray for those who will believe in me through them. And what did he pray for them? Over and over and over, he said that they will be one as we are one, that they will be one as we are one, over and over. He was talking about a unity. These people saw suddenly, remember in Acts chapter 2, it was all these different groups of people hearing their, that message in that language of, those, of, that, of that people, suddenly they are one. They are together. They have things in common. In other words, they're sharing these things. And it says they gave to one another. All right? Uh, anybody in this room Jewish? I've got to be careful about what I say. All right? I got part of Jewish background. My grandma's last name was Golding. So, yeah, a little Jew there, I guess. You know, Jews are known for being, I mean, there was a group of people in China. They were called the Jews of China because they knew how to make a buck. All right? Just something about Jews, I'm not sure why it is they have the ability to do that. That's what they've been known for, all right? You go to Jerusalem, you'll see the Arab part of Jerusalem, you see the Jewish part of Jerusalem, a world apart, just totally different, all right? Here's a people that suddenly instead of we're making money and about success and about making my world, suddenly they're giving it away. Suddenly they're forgetting themselves. Suddenly they have parked self at the door and... It's like, and, and, I, and again, this is a horrible parallel, but I'll go back to a picture we can draw from our, our culture today. Gangs. Suddenly, it doesn't matter what you can or can't do, you're in. All right? Maybe they have to have some initiation or whatever, and they've got to go out and do something evil, and then they're in. Maybe. I don't know. But the reality is they're wanting and needed. Here's a people that saw 
people together, together, together. And, and again, you know, we're going to see very clearly Community Bible Church will not be a church that will draw people in because we have incredible programs. That doesn't mean we should have bad programs or no programs, all right? But admittedly, what do people do when they visit a church? All right, do you have something for my kids? Do you have this ministry, this ministry, this We ask all those questions. But at the end of the day, we ought to be asking the number one question. What is the central focus of this church? The central focus of this church better be the Word of God, all right? If it's not, we're playing church, all right? Because the Word of God is giving us what will bring us together and grow us up. And that's what they saw. So in this first question, you've answered it for me. Together, together, together. The Spirit was producing these miracles, caught their attention, but what they saw beyond the miracles in the Spirit's work was they were together. And that's unusual because these were people from different nationalities, different backgrounds, different success levels, and it didn't matter because this is something that brought them together that was very, very different. All right, second scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you look at page 1.4, 1.4. Troy, would you read that for us? Sorry, I just bought. 1 Peter 2, and the, did you guys have a notebook back there? Did you get it? Okay. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. There's a lot that we could look at in these verses. Unfortunately, I'm just, here's, here's another. I, I will probably bring lots of analogies in from life in China, all right? Um, this gives you an idea of population in China. You go to the city of Shanghai. If you take the population of Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio, put it all together, that's Shanghai, all right? That's incredible, all right? Beijing's not too far behind that. But... I could fly into Beijing and see a big city, or we took the fast train sometimes, and you see the countryside. It's a different view. Up above, you see the big picture. Down on the train, you see life all along the way. You see a lot more details. Well, we're doing a flyover with this because we're just trying to catch little bits and pieces, things that we, not, we don't have time to camp out and look at all these details. One thing that Peter says about the church in the middle of this verse, verse 9, He says that he has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a second question I want to just focus on and getting your thoughts as best we can together. What do you think it means for the church to be God's called out people? God's called out people. What is significant about that? And again, here's the good news about this. There's no wrong answers. I'm not going to go, no, sorry, that was bad. All right. It's Carol, right? Bev, I'm sorry, Bev. Oh. Hold on. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's another Carol, and it's not my Carol. There's another Carol, and you reminded me of her, so I got it messed up. So Bev nailed it with together. Now, just because she got it exactly right doesn't mean if you don't get it exactly right, it's like, you know, loser, that sort of thing, all right? What I am looking for is when we say that we are God's called out people, what in the world does that mean? What is significant about that? What does Jesus mean by that? What does Peter mean by that? Brian.
does it mean that we are called out of this world? Okay. In other words, again, I go back to, to make our reference point in some respects from John 17. Jesus praying for us as a part of the body of Christ, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Okay? He said, I'm not praying to you, Father, and saying, please take them out of the world. What does he say? He says, I pray that you protect them from the evil one while they are in the world. In other words, we are not to be isolated. We are to be insulated. In other words, if we are a Christian and we become a Christian, what, what Brian just described is an anomaly. And that is, to say I'm a Christian but I don't attend church is to say something that really is, I don't know if it's oxymoron, paradox, oxymoron, I thought it was a great word when I was a kid in high school. It's the only thing I remember from English class, oxymoron, all right? But it doesn't make sense, all right? It's like lost in space, for those of you that are as old as me, lost in space and a robot says this does not compute, all right? That does not compute. Because the reality is this, to be called out means to be called out of this world into the body of Christ. To be called out of this world, not to heaven. I mean, honestly, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Holy smoke, get saved and never have to deal with sin again. It's like, sign me up, get me out of here, beam me up, let me be done with this. But that's not in his intent. God's intent then, Jesus said when he prayed was, help them to be one as we are one. God is a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they are one. We are community, but we are to be one. And the glue that holds us together is this love that says, together, together, together. doesn't matter who we are, what race we are, what... what, what um, ethnic background or financial background or educational background, none of that matters. What puts us all on an even plane is the cross, and this is what calls us, he calls us out of the world into this. That doesn't mean out of the world literally, but out of the world's system and into the family of Christ, which gives us a new purpose for living. All right, jumping to page 1.5, 1.5. Here's a more challenging one. And we're just hitting a couple scriptures and hitting a couple questions, and then we're going to draw it into some discussion here. Lord willing, and the crick don't rise. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Here's what Paul says as he's talking in a, in a challenging, really a challenging couple of chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. A lot of debates goes on in those chapters because it's talking about spiritual gifts. And what we do know is this. Every believer has been given at least one gift for ministry in the local church by the Holy Spirit. All right? That we know. Well, what we're looking at that's even more significantly, though, is not just that giftedness, but how we got into that body. Look, if you would, at the top of page 1.5, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Here's that equaling out. Here's that, that, that point that it doesn't matter whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are slave or free, it doesn't matter. Suddenly, none of that matters. But here's the question. It says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. The question that I chose out of this little uh, situation is, what does baptism, or when does, I'm sorry, baptism by the spirit occur? Okay. And this, this can be one of those trickier ones because this can be a minefield sometimes of baptism of the Spirit, all right? Something we have, something we seek, something we gain, okay? 
When does, if you look at this, think through it. This is just one verse. We're not looking at all that chapter. One verse. Paul says, think of who he's talking to. Who is he talking to? Who is he writing to? Okay, the church at Corinth. Okay, when you say the church at Corinth, what are you assuming? Okay, you're assuming they're all believers, all right? The church at Corinth. It's not just, we're not saying the building that these people meet at. We're saying those who profess faith in Christ, he is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. Not to, he didn't send it to 3700 Benson Road. He sent it to a group of people who were meeting in Corinth who had gathered together and called themselves the church. They profess Christ. They profess to have a genuine faith. Now, what does he say about this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because this is important. I mean, if, if we see anything in the book of Acts, we often say the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Some people have said the book of Acts is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. All right? Because the Holy Spirit's imprint is all throughout the book of Acts. It's like the person who has not yet been introduced is finally introduced. It is clear from the Old Testament the central figure that is being seen when we get to the New Testament is the Father. All right? It is clear from the Old Testament that when we see many messianic prophecies, it's pointing ahead to someone who will come who is introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now we have a third part of this community that is one, the Spirit, and He's the one that is calling us out and putting us into this body of Christ. Okay? So when does this happen? Any clues that you might see in this verse that helps us see this? Think in terms of this church. Think in terms of not a building. Think in terms of the people. Okay? I think she's on to something. Now, what, what, what in this text would make me think that? He's writing to a church. He's writing to believers. Okay? We're into one body. Here's where the verbs come in, and these are the key. You always look at, if you're looking for clues in, in Scripture, always look to verbs first, because verbs are action. Verbs are pulling it together. He says, for we were all baptized. Now, let me just ask you this. The church at Corinth, was it a great church? Okay, if you've read anything of 1 Corinthians, they're arguing, they're divisive, uh, they're very immature, they're handling things really badly. I mean, things that he is writing in this first letter, it's like, are you for real? You're doing that kind of stuff in the church? How could that be? We, we think that's just ridiculous. But he didn't say, you're not a church because you've done all these things. He's saying, you are and here's what you ought to be doing. Here's how you ought to be thinking. But he is saying, you were all baptized by the Spirit into the body. He says it again at the end of the verse. And we were all given one Spirit to drink. In other words, this is something that at the point of salvation happened in the past. And the result is, you have been put into the body of Christ. And this shows now through how you live. It shows in this area of giftedness that he develops in chapter 12, 13, and 14. So in other words, here's what we forget sometimes. When you and I became a believer, I was a six-year-old boy when I trusted Christ. I can still remember the man who sat down with me a hundred years ago on a Sunday night, uh, Seymour Collins, all right, one of the Collins family. If any of you remember the Collinses from Inner City, uh, been, he's been with the Lord for many years now and still remember trusting Christ that night. Some of you can remember distinctly details of when you trusted Christ. At that moment... Let me just say this. 
at that moment when our faith in Christ was real, the Spirit at that moment put us into the body of Christ. We suddenly became in His family. Okay? And when that happened, ultimately we got all of the Spirit we will ever get. And you say, well, I've heard that you can get more. Well, here's the reality. When we talk about in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, all right? Which assumes then, it's like saying, well, if, if I have a cup and you need to fill the cup, that means it doesn't have enough in it, so pour more in. But if you look at Ephesians 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And the parallel is, be not drunk with wine, whereas in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The parallel is showing that the point Paul is making is, as alcohol can control you when you are drunk, all right, that's a bad thing. Being filled with the Spirit means you are being controlled by the Spirit, and the evidence of it is, as he goes on in the rest of the book of Ephesians, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a worker, as a worshiper. He just develops it on and on and on. This is what it looks like when the Spirit has all of you. Because the good thing is, when you and I trusted Christ, we got all of the Spirit because we were all baptized into the body of Christ But he doesn't have all of us. He is still with us. We are a work in process. We are still yielding. And that yielding then is his work to change us so that we are a together people. We're not showing up going, hey, somebody's sitting in my seat. Do you realize that is my seat? I've been sitting there for a year. And we're like, we don't even think about the fact this person may not know Christ. I mean, I think back to years and years ago. I mean, this is back in... Weird church days, you know, like in the 15 and 1600s, people having literally pews and seats that they paid for, you know, in the dark ages of the church. Um, and if you had money, you got the good seats and the seats that had little warmers underneath the seat, you know, because it was a cold church. All right. I can't fathom that. All right. Now, I understand. I can't understand that life because they didn't have electricity and a lot of other things. But the reality is what made that church stand out in Acts chapter 2 and what the Spirit is doing to make us stand out is not a bunch of ministries that develop at community, but a people that have been called out who are now showing a together life, a life that's not about me anymore, a life that's about Christ, and the evidence of it is how we relate to one another, quite frankly. Because Jesus said, how will they know that you are my disciples? By your good doctrine? By your good ministries? By what? By the love we have for one another. And yet we do so many churchy things. And at the end of the day, the question is, are we passing that test? Because that's what he's called us out to. That's what he's doing. Now, here's a neat one. And then we're going to move on to our next section because we've got to fly if that's the right time. Yes, it is the right time. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Here's an interesting statement. Paul is writing about the church. And he says in these verses, his intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, and I need my glasses, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It asks the question, what is one of God's purposes for the church? Well, we could try to think of a number of purposes, but if you'll notice, and I won't take time to turn there and help us find it, he says this statement, which we've probably just glossed over many times if we've read the book of Ephesians. He says, he says his intent was that now through the church, catch this phrase, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Where does 
God intend his glory of his wisdom to be known through the church based on that phrase. That phrase that says the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Where? Where are we talking about? Thank you for that answer. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the reality. I mean, this is, what, this is what Paul is saying, which quite honestly is staggering. God's wisdom through the church, what he is doing through the church, isn't just on display for mankind. Quite frankly, what he's saying is, as he gets to Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about spiritual wickedness in high places and all the demonic forces that are out there, God is showing to them that in spite of the divisiveness that is built into our sinful nature and all that Satan and his demonic forces are doing to try to divide us, pull us apart and make us hate one another, reject one another, and end up in war. He is showing that through Christ, God's wisdom, death of his son, the son of God, is bringing these people together. In other words, the church is displaying not just to the world, I mean people, it is displaying to the to the forces of Satan, demonic forces. And we, we often, I, mean, I, I grew up in church, but I honestly, for the longest time, because I read the, all those little chick tracks when I was supposed to be paying attention in church, you know, kids pass around these chick tracks and you're reading some of these chick tracks. I mean, I was one of those kids that just thought, like, so many people grew up, all right? Satan, he's down there in hell. It's a hot place, but he's got control and he's got the, he's got the pitchfork and he's, he's, he's got his domain and the people that go end up down there with him. You know what? We grow up thinking that, but that is not the truth. We saw in the book of Job, he has direct access to God. We get to the book of Revelation, we see that he is the accuser of the brethren. He still is that. He is still having access to God, and so are a certain segment of his forces. Some of them have been confined to the abyss. Don't know why God chose some, not others. But they have free reign. And those that can see what, what is happening in this world... God is saying, I'm showing to them the wisdom of redemption's plan in Christ in the gathering of this people that you say they're going to divide. And he says, no, with the gospel, they're going to come together, together, together. They'll be one. Have you ever wondered, I mean, this is just an aside, and then we could just lose our way here, but I'll just throw this out to you. Have you ever wondered why, if Satan can read the Bible like you and I can read the Bible, why doesn't he come up with a different plan? Because if he's ever gotten to the book of Revelation, it doesn't turn out well for him. All right? It turns out really badly. And you would think that it'd be like, you know what? I see how that's written. I'm going to prove God wrong. I'm going to change it. What is Satan called? He's a, he's, a, he's a liar and the father of it. You ever met somebody who's really good at lying? Somebody who's really good at lying, what happens to them? They eventually do what? They believe their own lies. You see, Satan is convinced he's going to win. Satan is a deceiver. He is the master deceiver. He's been doing that since the garden. He is convinced he will win, even though we know the truth. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, has already been written. We know how the story turns out, and it doesn't turn out well. But here through the church, Ephesians chapter 3 is saying... God's wisdom is being displayed to those demonic forces, to Satan, that what God did in sending Christ, that he forecasted way back in Genesis 3.15, that, yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to give you a death blow to the head. 
and that death blow is the cross and the resurrection because that is what brought about the body of Christ. Now, here's the hard part. And I, I really tonight, because I knew we were going to be short on time, because we're walking into this just cold turkey and you didn't have this book or if you had it, you didn't know what we were doing. Um, there is a very long, not a very long, a very good article. It's fairly long that you go to page 1.7 that says getting with the program. In other words, here's the journey that we would normally take with this. We start with here's the issue and get our thinking going on it. Then we search through the scriptures and begin to see that God has given huge priority to the church. He's calling out a people. Every bit of his resources are poured toward the church. The gathering of the body of Christ from Acts chapter 2 on. This church is not only on display, this body of believers in this world, but to forces, to, to powers that we cannot see. God is displaying the glory of that. He is doing that and will continue to do that until he gathers us together as one in Christ. Now, the next thing we want to do normally then is instead of reading, here's what we tend to do. All right, I don't want to figure out the scriptures. Let me just read a book that tells me what I'm supposed to think. All right, that's what we do. That's what we're trying not to do with a study like this. Look at the issue, look at some scriptures, and then say, all right, when we started with those earlier questions, here's our earlier questions. What is the church, and how does it fit into God's master plan? What is the role of the church in God's work, and how can you and I become more fully involved? Well, that's where Jeff Jones has written an incredibly good article called Getting with the Program. And all I'm going to do, as I said, as a flyover because of time, is to hit some highlights of what he said that kind of pulls these things together. Why have we been called out from this world into this new community? What is it that God's all about? And we can say, well, if I ask that question, we will often say, well, the Great Commission, all right? The Great Commission. But even that, sometimes we don't have enough details put into our thinking with the Great Commission. I'll try to draw that out in a minute. Look, if you would, on page 1.7. The bottom of page, that page, it says God's purpose through the ages. If you go over to the right column, this is the hard part where we're all trying to find these spots. It's highlighted in my book. I don't know why it's not highlighted in your book because I've highlighted all over the place, all right? Over on that second column up near the top, about 10 lines down, it starts with these words. It says, two words, redemption and rule, summarizes plan. If we're going to talk about God's purpose with this new community God is laying out redemption and rule. Remember in the prayer of the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. God is unveiling that through the church. He is showing that someday there will be a kingdom, there will be a king. King Jesus came, he established his rightful rule, but someday he will display perfectly that rightful rule here on earth. So the the whole big picture of the church is redemption and rule, buying us out of the slavery of sin, putting us into the family of Christ. Someday we will rule and reign with Christ. All right? Now, having said that, go down to the very bottom of that page. And here's here's something that I, I just want to draw out about when I said about the Great Commission. Down in that very last paragraph at the bottom right column of one page, that page 1.7. 
Third line down, right after it says 1 Peter 2.9, it says, God is not just about getting people saved. He is doing something far greater. He is calling out a people for his glory and his purposes. Um, we have focused on, and rightfully so as a church, evangelism, sharing the gospel, bringing people in contact with the, faith, with, with the message of Jesus Christ. Now, what we want to see that evangelism was never intended to be the end all, all right? Um, if, we, if we think that the Great Commission is simply giving us the mission to evangelize, we've missed part of the story. We haven't gotten the whole picture. What do I mean by that? Well, let's turn the page. When it says God's plan for this age, the centrality of the church... Ah, this is the hard part, going down through the book. If you go down to the middle of that section on the left column, there's a quote, and it says, uh, this man, Grenz, states, According to the New Testament, the focal point of God's new reconciled society is the church of Jesus Christ. And further down, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. So at the end of the day, and, and I, I don't want to say something that will... Um, offend you, there's a word that's been used for decades, soul winning. Now, you've heard this word probably. I don't think it's an evil word, but I think it's a word that perhaps doesn't accurately describe what we are doing as God's people. Uh, The truth is, I've never won a soul to Jesus Christ. And you're like, well, then you shouldn't be one of our pastors. You're a really bad guy. All right. Uh, That's not my point. Uh, The point is this. You and I can never make somebody a believer. We introduce them to Jesus Christ. We introduce them by our life and hopefully by our lips. Hopefully what we say and what we do show that what we say and what we do are one and the same. We really believe this message. But we are introducing people to Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I build my church. He is the master of it. He is the Lord of it, but he's the builder of the church. And we are part of those cornerstones that are being built up. That being said, jump over one more page to 1.9. 1.9. Okay, if you look down in the bottom left column, bottom left column, 1.9, it says, when we're talking about the church being a model then, um, we are a model of being reconciled. In other words, we were no longer, in, we were not in relationship with God, now we're in relationship with God, and because of that, we can have a good relationship with one another. Look down at the bottom of page 1.9, left column, last paragraph. It says, What a challenge this is for each of our churches and us as individuals. When we fail to love each other, have you found that? All right. When we fail to love each other as we should and when we fail to live holy lives, we harm not only ourselves but also the reputation of the king. All right. Because our time is over and we didn't get nearly as far as I hoped, but I knew that that would be that way the first week. All right. Just what it is. Here's what I I draw your attention to. I take that last statement and go back to what we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The people were drawn into favor, the church, this new body, this group of believers. They were drawn into favor with the people because of the together, together, together. All right? They had things common. They shared. When we will be a church that will draw people in 
It's not when we finish doing landscaping outside. It's not when we finish off the east wing of the building. It's not when we add more ministries. It's not when we do more cool things. I mean, we could have all kinds of bouncy houses out here and have a bazillion people out here. But at the end of the day, if that's what draws them in, there's no commitment. At the end of the day, what is supposed to be drawing them in is this unity that is brought about by the Spirit in this new community. And it's something that supersedes any other thing we could ever do. And if we are, and I just, and I promise this is the end. You're like, land the plane. Um, They say that 80% of the work usually gets done by 20% of the people in the church. And one one of the pictures that fits with college football time right now, you know, that it's like, there's, and this is, if you think of the big house, I don't know how many people are at, at Michigan State Stadium. How many would be there if you had a full house? 70,000, all right? It's like saying there are 70,000 people in the stadium. No, there's 22 people playing football that are in bad need of a rest, and there's 70,000 people in the stadium that are in bad need of exercise, all right? Because what happens is that's usually what happens in a church. You got a lot of people that are just kind of walking in, watching the show, and walking out. And then there's a handful of people that are just running, working, working, doing. And I'll tell you right now, those people that are running, working, doing, doing are the people who are growing up, who are growing together, and that together, together, together is growing. Because Jesus didn't pray for isolation. He prayed for insulation. If we isolate, we don't shine. And we don't draw in favor of the world. What makes us different than the world is we don't have to have a certain car, a certain house, a certain TV, a certain anything. What we have is Christ, and that changes everything. All right, um, before you leave tonight, i got to run get it because I left it in this room after we moved three times. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Glenn, would you close us in prayer so I can sneak out and grab that, and I'll be right back, and we will go. Thank you, Glenn.